Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hey, y'all. Just so you know, we're going to be talking about this week's episodes of In Treatment. So spoilers are ahead. We also wanted to let you know that we'll be having conversations about suicide and suicidal ideation. There's also some explicit language in this podcast. Please, please take care of yourself while listening. everybody. My name is Brandon Kyle Goodman. My pronouns are he, they. I am a writer, an actor, an activist. I'm also black and queer, honey, and it's great to be black and queer, honey. (laughs) Yes, it is. Yeah, and I am Dr. Janelle S. Pfeiffer. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist and academic, and I am also a mom. And welcome to In Session, which is the official companion podcast of the HBO show In Treatment, where we're going to deconstruct what happened on the show so we can understand what happens in therapy. But remember, this show is not a substitute for therapy, so reach out to a professional if you need. All right, let's get started. So this week, we really started to see the ground shake and rupture between Dr. Brooke and her patients. She doubts Eladio's bipolar diagnosis. She gets fed up with Colin's narcissism. And with Layla, they get into how she feels in her body. Mm-hmm. Yes. And we really found out the extent of her relapse with alcohol. Okay, let's start with Eladio. But Eladio, I want to be honest about my analysis, about what I've shared with Dr. Amati. Yeah? I have serious doubts about the validity of your bipolar diagnosis. I know that's going to take a second to digest, so... I am going to walk you through every step of my thinking, and I'm going to... What? And then he hangs up on her. So what what Mm. was going through... I know I have thoughts about uh, this, but let's start with you, Dr. Janelle. What what did you feel about this this moment? There's so much that came up for me. One, I am wondering about how she decided to approach this and yes. how she decided to name this. Two, I'm thinking more broadly about diagnosis and how it can serve so many different roles. And one of them, it sounds like, especially for Eladio, is how questioning a diagnosis can also be questioning of an identity. Yeah. Like, part of us. Um, and the validity, like that word that she used, I'm questioning the validity yes. of this diagnosis. And then my geek brain went off to thinking about, you know, just the complexity of diagnosing and, and what that looks like mm-hmm. in different situations. Yeah, I was really struck by the wording of it. Like, I have doubts about your diagnosis and all that, especially knowing that Eladio is so skittish. 
like it's a really sensitive relationship and, and it's it's one of the relationships that I feel like we've seen just like moments of fuck ups from the first episode, right? Like answering the mm-hmm. call in the middle of the night is how we started the series. And so the fact that Dr. Brooke hadn't taken extra care about how she was going to question this diagnosis, which seems to be such, as you said, an integral part of Eladio's identity, was really striking to me. Dr. Janelle, can you actually tell us a little bit more, you know, we're talking about this diagnosis and Dr. Brooks doubting Eladio's diagnosis. So I would love to talk about how one diagnoses somebody and Mm -hmm. and how misdiagnoses happen. Mm -hmm. Do you have any thoughts about that that you can lead us through? Oh, I have so many thoughts about it. Uh, you'll have to help make sure that I stay <laughs> reined in. <laughs> I got um, you. <laughs> diagnosis is something I just think is fascinating. On the side of the clinician, there is this art and science to diagnosis. Mm. It's really, the way that I view it, this conversation that you have over time to be able to try to put language to what you might be seeing, which of course is extremely subjective. It's dynamic. Mm -hmm. It changes at different points depending on what you're seeing, what you might be missing, which I think we definitely have in mind when we're watching Brooke grow through the process. Sure. One of the things that I often have conversations with with my clients is that misdiagnosis or the idea of, well, you know, this one person told me that this was my diagnosis and now you're telling me something else Yeah, is that part of it is being able to acknowledge the fact that a lot of the diagnoses in the DSM, which is what we use as our um, manual. What's DSM mean? Oh, let me break it down. The Diagnostic <laughs> and Statistical Manual, it is basically the Bible for all of the recognized mental health diagnoses. So everything from major depressive disorder to narcissistic personality disorder. You'll open up this book that's about, you know, it's it's huge. It's a big boy. It's huge. It's um, like a couple and encyclopedias. It exactly. Like. <laughs> and it has like the different checklist of symptoms and traits that you would be looking for. And of course, when we think about diagnosis, it's important in many levels. Like for Eladio, we saw that diagnosis meant community. It meant belonging. It meant um, having language to try to understand something about himself. Mm. But when we think about the DSM, and it's super controversial, I have very mixed relationship with the DSM because it also is a tool for gatekeeping in some situations, right? How so? Yeah. So for instance, with insurance, for many insurance companies, in order to reimburse and pay for your therapy sessions, you're required to have a diagnosis, which I have a lot of feelings about. So the ability to have something make it into the DSM, which becomes a really huge process. We only have, we're on DSM-5. They don't revise them often. Wow. And the diagnostic process is not without a lot of painful history of diagnosis being used for marginalization. So, for instance, homosexuality was in the DSM before it was revised out. Right now, gender dysphoria is in the DSM, which in some ways you have this dual, like, the diagnosis is required in some situations for people to get reimbursed for gender confirmation surgeries. But at the same time, I have conversations with my students when we're doing abnormal psychology and talking about diagnosis where they're like, 
it's listed as a mental disorder, right? right like you're indicating right. that. So it's super complex when we think about yeah, yeah. diagnosis. And so, yeah, it is. It Diagnosis matters in so many ways for gatekeeping, for being able to get access to resources, for being able to get support and community. And in many ways, it can also be used to identify the best way to approach what the therapeutic work might look like. Because if you're struggling with lack of concentration because of depression, you're going to manage that differently than if the lack of concentration has to do with ADHD, right? Sure, 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 yes. So diagnosis, of course, like has all of this complication. So you can get why it feels really painful for somebody when you come in and they've had a diagnosis that they've come to terms with, they've identified with, and for somebody to say, mm, I don't think that's it. Yeah. Like you noticed, that's part of the reason why it's a little bit shocking for Dr. Brooke to kind of cavalierly be like, I don't think that's valid. <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> yes. And to your point about like the art and the science, I feel like the science of it is clear what that would be. But the art of that you could have these symptoms and they could mean different things. But also I imagine the art is in how one relays that information. Mm -hmm. Is that correct? Or how mm -hmm. one goes about re-diagnosing somebody? Mm -hmm. There would be like a skill and an art to mm -hmm. how Dr. Brooke should have possibly done that. Would you, is that off on? No, I think it's, I think it's on that there is an art to being able to diagnose, to create conversations where people are being able to talk in a way that shares information that helps you to pick up yeah. on what might be going on. Because, of course, you have a checklist, but that's just the tip of the iceberg. Like, being able sure. to get to a diagnosis is much more complex because humans are complex. So there's that art of being able to actually get the information. And then, like you said, there's the art with what you do with it then. Like, yeah. how do you share that? How do you help respond to questions and concerns and stigma that people might feel? And mm -hmm. I mean... And some instances as well, there are places, and increasingly in my therapeutic work, I have a really complex relationship with diagnosis. Like, at what points is it helpful? And at what points do people defy these little boxes of categories that we try to have in black and white in this little book? How are people on a spectrum? It can be helpful to not have like a flat diagnosis, but one mm -hmm. that's saying, okay, I'm seeing some traits of this. I'm seeing some aspects of this. And how does this look for you? Not yeah. as what this book says. How does this show up in your life? For the individual. Well, in talking about diagnosis, when we think about Colin, we have this moment where <laughs> Dr. Brooke gives another <laughs> kind of diagnosis, which is <laughs> yeah. that Colin is a narcissist, mm -hmm. <laughs> which were you surprised? Yeah. I mean, because she and like I was surprised, but also it's that kind of surprise where you're like, I'm surprised, but also I'm like a little like excited at the same yes. time. Yes. Wait, were you surprised that Colin was a narcissist or how Dr. Brooke said it? Oh, I was surprised how she said it. I was how she said it. Okay, not yes. surprised of the, <laughs> the diagnosis. Yeah. I was not surprised, definitely. And I think that narcissism is having a moment in the mm -hmm. mainstream and like a part of our national conversation. It definitely got my wheels turning about what is narcissism, right? Like yeah. what does that really look like in clinical terms? Well, why don't we play the clip where <laughs> Dr. Brooke gives her diagnosis? Mm -hmm. But have you learned anything? 
Really? Have you learned anything? Because it seems that to you, the truth doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is how you are perceived. Something doesn't work, tell them that it does. Someone is critical of you, spin a tale of lost love. I told myself that I had reached a point in my career that I did not have to treat narcissists. It is fruitless and it is exhausting. I'm not a narcissist. Hannah, me, the investors, we are not people to you. We are obstacles to overcome. Fool me and move on to whoever's next. I don't want to fool you. I want you to like me. Even if it means lying to me. Well, what other choice do I have? Doing the exact opposite. Mm. 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 <laughs> it's like, may we all reach the point in our career where we do not have to treat or engage with narcissists. <laughs> wow, 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 wow. I mean, when she, you know, what was interesting about the uh, thinking about it again, the art of diagnosing is that it was not gentle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like she has feelings about narcissists and that, I don't know, you know, whether that's right or wrong in terms of how she delivered it, but it struck me how, how heated she mm-hmm. was. Mm-hmm. But also to her credit for every episode we've had so far, I have also expressed wild frustration with Colin. <laughs> and so, you know, narcissists are infuriating. This idea that somebody just lacks empathy mm. is infuriating and, and feels like such a waste of time because you're like you're not actually here for any human connection you are mm. here to get what you need at any by any means necessary and so i could understand why dr brooke was heated but i wonder do you think that's the way you deliver that diagnosis dr janelle <laughs> um no <laughs> i don't think so and i realize i want to be aware of the fact that this is one of those situations where I even said, like, a narcissist, rather than thinking about the fact that this is a person with a diagnosis, right? So mm. I'm going to ch- I'm gonna make that shift in, in my thinking and in my speaking that really narcissistic personality disorder and so many of the personality diagnoses in the DSM are really sometimes misunderstood. Mm. And I think that that can lead to a lot of pain, not only for that individual, but people who are in their families and in their communities. So it's really vital that we're able to think about, like, what is narcissistic personality disorder? And what in the sessions that we saw with Dr. Brooke kind of let us know and start to think in that direction of that diagnosis? Um, So you mind if we think that through together? I was literally going to ask, would you mind defining that? And like, you telling us? Would you mind answering that question? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. So narcissistic personality disorder is really characterized by this intense focus of self and achievement and being perceived by others in a very specific way. Like I think in Colin talking about how important it was for him to basically spin a narrative of being at the center spoke of things, Mm -hmm. knowing that that was so important. And part of this, I want to kind of slow down and back it up, that one of the things that I think many people don't know about narcissistic personality disorder or some of those traits is it really comes from a place of deep pain Mm. and what we often think about as like a narcissistic void, this feeling of like an insatiable desire that really can't be met and many times might be the result of trauma, might be the result of early childhood stuff, not to negate some of the harm that can come from when that goes unchecked and if that's not addressed. But I think that's helpful to recognize. But 
when we see in these sessions some signs of this narcissism um, showing up for Colin is really we talked about the getting the vasectomy and continuing to spin the tale for his wife that and letting her believe that she had fertility issues. Oh, no, this was painful. I mean, at one point, I don't know, for all the other clinician geeks out there, I was like, is this narcissism or is this antisocial personality disorder, which are closely related, right? Mm. And then the way that he talks about manipulation and his intense focus on how he is perceived in the world of um, tech and that being so critical for him. And then especially here it is, the the flag that like waved it um, like a banner from the sky was when he talked about the trigger of the article leading to that breakdown in prison, that that was really the thing that sent him over the edge was the um, reporter writing that scathing sort of takedown of him. Um, it shows you that that void, that vulnerability that we're talking about. Oftentimes people think that narcissists are so full of themselves, they have this super inflated ego. But what yeah. you see is it's like a balloon. It's super inflated and one prick, poof, right? Oh, that's a beautiful metaphor. I had thoughts in last week's episode where he was questioning, like, how do you get inside of other people's heads? Mm-hmm. And that's when my, like, my little Scooby-Doo, like, <laughs> like <laughs> yeah. you ask them, Colin. <laughs> Basics. But I was like, why is he? I was like, oh, maybe they're, I wonder if he's a narcissist. And then to, like you know, again, hear the story about the vasectomy to also, like, have him waiting outside for mm-hmm. his wife to come to this session <sighs> yes. who he never confirmed was coming, but did that whole song and dance to kind of get Dr. Brooks' pity or whatever, just all of that. I get conflicted, and we talk, you know, we we talk a lot about the, what I'll just call the gray space, right, where mm-hmm. we talk about, like, a couple things can exist, and, mm-hmm. like, they can be opposites, and they can both kind of be true and coexist. And so it's, like, for me with Colin, it's hard to uh, have empathy for him. Mm-hmm. And yet, especially in the way the show is written, I do find myself having empathy for him, which feels like the opposite of what I should feel for a narcissist for whatever mm. reason. I feel mm. like you're a narcissist. Get the fuck out of my face. But mm-hmm. I was like, it must be painful to not be able to feel in a mm-hmm. world where like, you're supposed to feel (laughs) like what is it like to just not give a fuck and to really be burning every single bridge i mean when he leaves you really feel like he burned that bridge with dr brooke you know you really feel like i do not know what's gonna happen to you baby like Mm -hmm. dr brooke might send your ass right back i (laughs) I do not know uh yes well i mean and i think that you hit the nail right on the head, like that conflict that comes up. Because, of course, like it's helpful to be aware of when people are in the throes of like these narcissistic tendencies in a way that you can get burned and you can get hurt, right? Mm-hmm. And at the same time, you you have this other side that says, but being able to recognize, especially if this is something that shows up, you know, maybe it's not at the same level that it was for Colin, but 
you know, that shows up in your life, being able to take ownership and responsibility for it, that that's something that, yeah, you could work on in therapy. Like you could even see Colin, I think some of it is spin and some of it is him telling stories about the what he's getting out of the work. But I, sure. could, I felt like I'm like, if they could stay in this and she was able to challenge him and help him develop some of these skills and work on this, I mean, it wouldn't be easy, right? But that yeah. there is a lot of potential that this is something that he could become aware of and then take responsibility for managing so everyone in his life isn't having to have the blowback of his completely unaddressed narcissistic um, personality disorder. Okay, well, let's get into what happened with Layla this week. Dr. Brooke really zeroed in on the way Layla's daydreaming can put her in physical and emotional danger. I want to play this clip for you. Have you ever heard of somatic therapy, Layla? Oh, soma means body in Latin. It's a body-centered therapy. Looks at the mind-body relationship, especially as it relates to trauma. Okay, cool. I'm not an expert, but I can't help feeling this, uh, this pull to keep you grounded in the present, in your body, in this room. Why? I'm still trying to figure that out for myself. So you, like, don't know everything? I told you. <laughs> but I do think Something important is here, Layla. And I think it somehow ties to the discipline you experienced from your grandmother and your tendency towards fantasy, your constant desire to escape. Can I just, like, not care about any of that stuff? Any of what? Like, like physical stuff, body stuff, like corporeal stuff, as you would say, like arms, legs, tits, like... What does it even mean? Mm-hmm. Layla's really complicated for me. <laughs> I, at first episode, did not feel... I felt like we related in some ways. Mm-hmm. And then by, you know, the third week, and now here we are on the fourth week, I'm like, oh my goodness, I feel mm-hmm. like I feel like I am Layla. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, just in terms of really understanding the, I guess, the disassociation from one's body. Mm-hmm. Um, which for me, I think, is also... One, related to sex, which I'm gay and grew up Mm. in a religious household, so there's that around, like, what sex is and if it's okay. You know, when Layla talks about, you know, seeing her grandmother, Mm. right, like, there's a lot of that. And then also just how I identify gender-wise, non-binary, and, Mm -hmm. like, growing up, not having that language and kind of feeling just out of my body and out of control with my body. Like, I just didn't know what it was or, or... what it was, was not performing the way that I was told it was supposed to perform. Oh, yes. Does that make sense? Oh, yes. I want to hear so much more about this. But this idea of how you were supposed to feel and what you should feel, and then this clear, I mean, what I'm hearing is like this clear sense that that wasn't true for you. Mm-hmm. If you don't have the language, if it feels like there isn't a space for you to be able to explore that, what is that, particularly as you're trying to figure it out as a teenager? Yeah, what is that? 
it's such a lost space, right? Because you don't, you're hearing, it should be like this. Sex should feel like this. Mm-hmm. Sex, everyone wants to have sex. It should be ba da 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 And then for you, you're not having that, which, you know, I think we've talked off camera of like, is it possible that Layla's asexual? Mm-hmm. Or are there other things happening inside of her gender? Or mm-hmm. is it just raised in a house where she felt shame and so like she doesn't have a positive relationship to her body and there's that moment where dr brooke really explains why that could be Mm -hmm. i want to play that clip for you i think that girls and women have been conditioned to not be present in their bodies during sex What do you mean? Society in general places importance on female-identified bodies looking good during a sexual encounter. How we feel during a sexual encounter is secondary. It creates a pervasive, dissociative effect. That's how you go into your mind with your grandma and not stay in the moment in your body. You ever heard people talk about female orgasm, right? Yeah, like you shouldn't expect it to happen every time. Exactly. It's fickle. Uh, Female sexuality is mysterious. Women are unknowable. Making us come is arduous. Locating the clitoris is impossible. You know, this all broadcasts out to every gender. Women's feelings are so... So difficult to determine. It's not even worth the effort. Yes. And thinking about Layla, thinking about what you said about your personal experience, too, it really does go back to that idea of the the art behind diagnosis because there's no clear one thing. We're thinking about trauma. We're thinking about disassociation. We're thinking about gender identity. We're thinking about culture. And all of this is coming together in this rich web. And really, then you look at the DSM and what they really like is for you to choose one primary diagnosis, which is just overly simplified when you're looking at somebody like Layla, when we're talking about your experience. And I kind of feel like it's important that we talk about disassociation. Yes. So disassociation is the experience often related to trauma or traumatic event where we, as a protective mechanism, disconnect from our conscious experience of ourself in our body. Mm. So if you've ever felt that sort of fragmentation where in sometimes people describe feeling like they are watching something happen to themselves, yes, that is a disassociation. It can mm-hmm. go to a really extreme end with something like dissociative identity disorder, which, uh, you know, used to be multiple personality disorder. Um, where you are having that experience to the point where they're different, you're separating from yourself and their whole other personalities or like people within you, parts of you. Other related to that, we have something like called depersonalization and derealization, which is something we talk about less, but it's I, some of what Layla was talking about made me think about where, yeah, you don't feel like yourself. And then derealization is that feeling of surreality Mm. where you don't feel like your world or experience 
is real. Like you feel all of these different things that kind of take you away from the ability to um, really be in yourself in the moment. And Layla talks about this a lot in this session and also it makes you think about those fantasy worlds. What role are they playing and what role is this disassociation or depersonalization or even derealization playing as a protective mechanism? What mm-hmm. What is making it hard for her to be fully in her body and in herself? Which it sounds like, you know, towards the end of the episode, maybe this is the X for her which is the feeling uh, of being useless, which, mm-hmm. you know, she really goes off on my imagination. I can study, I can da 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 but I don't know how to do anything. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to function in this world. I think she says I would rather die. And in, in watching, I was like, oh, wow. Yeah, if you felt to your core mm-hmm. that you were useless and that you're about to be released into the world at 18 Mm -hmm. to go be something and do something, but you don't know how to do anything, Mm -hmm. then, yeah, that pressure would be so overwhelming. No wonder you're disassociating. No wonder you're going into yourself. No wonder you're like, I would rather die. Because what a tall order to be asked to go out into the world, not just as a person, but as a black person, mm-hmm. as a black woman, as a black queer woman, to go out into the world and yes. do and be. Like, what do you mean? Mm-hmm. Like, how? Where do I even begin? Oh, yes. No, I mean, and thinking about she's bringing all of this complexity into the room as she is trying to explore and ask these unanswerable questions. Yes. Right? Everybody in her life is pushing for her to be Mm two-dimensional and to check the boxes. And there's this whole universe of being inside of her that doesn't fit within the narratives of what people want. And that in and of itself is traumatic, right? And Brooke boils it down to, I think, that this might have something to do with the beatings, which... Yes. (laughs) Yeah. When talking, what do you tell me? What are you feeling about that? I think I wrote down the kind of like the black parenting rooted in protecting the child from her traumas of the white world. Mm. Even I'm sorry, I even think about um, the reason that she's there. Right, Grandma brings uh, Layla because she's queer and she wants to work on that, yes. <laughs> like yes. just to like make sure it's okay. Mm-hmm. But it's what's what's really being said in some way is your life is hard. Don't make it harder. Mm-hmm. Which there is validity to that, but also like you can't change that you're queer the same mm-hmm. way you can't change that you're black, that you can't t- change that you're a woman. So then what is the point of all this at home trauma, right? Mm-hmm. Like why not have spent the time loving me mm. and holding me and talking to me? And, you know, that when she talks about the... Uh, when she talks about <laughs> running away and then her grandmother meeting her and not speaking to her until she says, get the belt. Yes. Like all that time for good conversation, for for understanding what what is the sadness, what is the whatever, but it, that, that wasn't there for her. Mm-hmm. So how is she supposed to exist? Mm-hmm. And she's like, somehow I am going to beat you into a compliant state Yes, for your safety. I am going to adorn you with all of the markings of success that white mm-hmm. society has demanded of you. And I cannot begin to engage with the complexity of you because it's terrifying for me. Yes. 
Yes. One of the people who I love, one of my girls from grad school does work, Rihanna Anderson. She is incredible. And her work focuses on the protective role of family when it comes to engaging with prejudice and bias. Mm. So the idea that the Black family has a unique ability to buffer against the negative outcomes of of racism, of prejudice, of sexism, and that the key component of that is love, warmth, pride, and acceptance, right? Mm -hmm. I do worry about Layla, especially because she's giving away items, her purses, her things, which is a glaring red flag for suicide and suicidal ideation. Mm. This episode will bring up a lot for folks who have experienced suicide. It's hit Mm -hmm. their lives and... Um, so mm-hmm. make sure that you're looking out and taking care of yourself and looking out for these and other folks. Because, yeah, yes. if people tell you that they'd rather be dead, take them seriously. Engage with it. Talk with them about that. Absolutely. Can I ask you a question? Because I think this is important. If somebody does say that, you know, if your friend or a loved one says to you, I'd rather be dead or mm-hmm. anything in that vein, there might not be a right thing or best thing, but what is the next thing that you Mm -hmm. should say or do for them? Ah, yes. Not the best thing, but the next thing, right? Yeah. Well, and I'm so glad you brought this back because the second that I said that, I was like, I don't want people to feel like they have responsibility to do crisis therapy because that is a skill set that people dedicate their life to investing and honing. And really, the role that I think about it is that you are the bridge to the higher level of support. Mm. You don't have to solve it. You don't have to fix it. You don't have to be the therapist. You don't have to be the clinician. What you're doing is being that warm and supportive person to be able to ask questions. Because one of mm-hmm. the you know myths that we have that people often worry that if they name and ask somebody, are you thinking about killing yourself, that they're going to plant an idea Sure. Or something like that, where what we know is just being able to use those open-ended questions and creating space for somebody who you know and trust to be able to talk about what they're experiencing and then thinking about what is the next step. Most straightforward folks can call 911 or they can call a crisis line. Being able to connect that person and let them know that they are seen, they are witnessed in the level of pain that they're experiencing, and that Mm -hmm. you are taking it seriously. Seriously. It's not something, especially for teenagers, especially the massage noir, like definitely informs this, where young black women talking about suicidality aren't taken seriously. It's seen as dramatic or seen as trying Mm -hmm. to get attention. But we know that in the research on suicide, one of the biggest factors is people have told the people in their life that they're thinking about killing themselves. Yeah. Well, in thinking about the bridge of support, I think about Rita mm-hmm. being the bridge of support to Brooke. Yeah. And in this episode, this fourth week with Brooke was really, really challenging. And we've mm-hmm. talked a lot about diagnosis in this episode. And Dr. Brooke has her own diagnosis to deal with, which is addiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I feel like her episode needs its own podcast episode like I could spend an entire episode but for now you know let's listen to Brooke and Rita talk about their relationship with addiction Mm -hmm. 
I need you, Rita. Then why did you do it? To what? Why did you invite me over here this morning? And then get so obliterated last night, you couldn't get out of bed. That's a stupid question to ask an alcoholic. Somewhere, deep inside, you knew it would mean the end between us. The second I hit start on your coffee machine, the moment I helped you put on your slippers, it was over. Don't say that. Alone in your kitchen, going through the checklist of things I needed to get through the morning after. The second I walked into your bedroom, that familiar smell of sleeping it off was very triggering for me. There are so many places that I want to begin. As an actor, mm. I'm going to begin here and saying the actress who plays Rita mm. deserves every single award under the sun. Just give them to her. Let's not play games. Mm. Just give it to her. Mm-hmm. This was, to me, really a Rita episode mm-hmm. in many ways, at least the first half. But it's funny, I was watching this with my husband when she's like making in the kitchen the coffee and my husband was like is it supposed to be this disorienting and i was like yes because like immediately you just felt as soon as rita's in that kitchen looking around there's no words but as she goes to the espresso machine and she looks for the excedrin and she gets the banana you could feel we weren't in the pit of the the drunkenness Mm -hmm. we were in that morning after Mm -hmm. in the real quiet darkness Mm -hmm. And in the lens of a loved one mm-hmm. who is about to make a really clear boundary. Yes. Honestly, I was like, in terms of breakups on TV, this is the hardest breakup I have ever watched on TV. Yes. Just heartbreaking. Yes. Oh, man. Yes. I agree and underline and underscore everything you said. It was heart-wrenching to watch, and I felt like, you know, I don't know all the back end of making beautiful, you know, TV as you do, but there was something, it felt like it pulled us into the parallel process of Mm -hmm. the heart-wrenching loss that Rita was feeling and the real just power and pain that can come with a boundary that is necessarily set, right? Yes. Yes. And thinking about how a boundary can be an act of love as well. Mm-hmm. And her really being able to invite Brooke to say, when you are in a place where you are ready for us to be able to have a healthy relationship that will like protect me and protect you, I'm here. Right. Yes. Call me. Yes. But it can't be like this. Like this is this is going to destroy both of us. And it was painful to see like Rita pointed out 
that it felt like it was, I mean, self-harm isn't always active alcohol, like addiction, substance use disorders. Yeah. And it almost feeling like she's pushing away everyone who could be with her in the, like, in the storm. Yes. Rita, in the clip we listened to, brings up, then why did you get obliterated? Knowing yeah. that I'm coming. Yes. Why did you get obliterated the night before? And I think in the scene before where Rita helps Brooke out of bed and Brooke says, I'm sorry. Yes. I was like, oh, the awareness. Mm-hmm. You're seeing Brooke in a sober state, yes. able to see what she's done and apologizing before the conversation has mm-hmm. even happened, mm-hmm. which just writing-wise was brilliant because in my mind I was like, okay, well then everything will be fine. Like, yeah. It'll be fine. Like She said, I'm sorry. Uh-huh. They're going to watch the eclipse. It's going to be fine. And then it's obviously not no. Rita. Rightfully so sets that really painful but necessary, as you said, important boundary. Mm-hmm. I felt like this was Dr. Brooks' equivalent of... Layla crashing her cars over and over again. Ah, that's brilliant. Yes, yes. Watching it play out, it was compelling. And like you said, I could not look away. And Mm -hmm. at the same time, it was horrible. Yeah, especially when you think about Brooke saying, you see me, girl. Mm -hmm. Knowing that Rita really loves her. Yes. And that Rita gets her and that she doesn't have to be Dr. Brooke Mm -hmm. for Rita. Mm -hmm. She gets to be who she is. Mm -hmm. But in some respects, being seen can also be triggering. Oh, yes. Being seen is what we want, (sighs) like to be seen, to be validated. But also at times being seen can also be triggering. And so we push people away Mm. because they can see us, because they accept us. But we don't accept ourselves. Mm Everything you said just resonated with me, but this real intolerability of, like, true intimacy, of, like, really Mm -hmm. being seen. Oh, yeah. I really felt so much empathy for people who struggle with addiction, Mm -hmm. especially because of seeing Brooke in previous episodes and who she is and how she uh, works. But in this episode, seeing that moment of clarity, this scene with Rita and being with her in the clarity and knowing that it's not going to stick. Yes. There was something. uh, Go ahead. No, yeah, I didn't mean to cut you off. I got so excited. No, no, not at all. No, please. We're like, ugh, yeah. we're feeling all the feels, please. No, I mean, and, and especially like as a therapist, it's scary too because it feels like the stakes are so high. Everything is on the yeah. line. License is on the line. Like, yeah. Being in the active throes of addiction, I mean, you lose your license, right? Sure. So, I mean, it is, it, it's hard to watch. I think the episode was so brilliant. I know we'll talk about kind of the second half with Adam, mm-hmm. but I think what's so brilliant again about showing this like after the, the morning after is it really um it shows her heart. Do you mm-hmm. know? It's like it just shows how painful this also is for Dr. Brooke mm-hmm. as it is for Rita, but also just like you're rooting for her. I'm rooting yeah. for her. Yes. And at the same time I understand that it's greater than her because when you have somebody who has all these accolades, who is supposed to be the smartest and the ba-da-da-da-da, and even they can't fight this Mm -hmm. thing, you know, it's like, oh, it's deeper than just like willpower. Like people like, (laughs) yeah, like I think we talk about addiction is like, well, just like, you know, throw out all the bottles or like, just don't do it. And it's not 
that. It's like, if you take nothing away, it's that this thing is a disease and that it is something that people really reckon with. Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's heartbreaking. Well, and I think that especially to see her as a black woman portrayed Mm -hmm. with this amount of nuance in her addiction, because we know that historically the level of compassion that was granted to folks who were impacted by things like the crack epidemic that was disproportionately Mm -hmm. black was not the same as when you look at the opioid epidemic. There are different levels of humanity that are granted for folks who are grappling with addiction based on who you are, right? Yes. So having her portray this addiction in a way that made you, like you said, feel drawn in to root for her with this loving warmth and like compassion and empathy, I think was important. Yes. And to also say that everyone deserves that, right? No matter Mm -hmm. what their class is, no matter how educated, it's like every person that is struggling with addiction deserves that empathy, deserves to be rooted for. And yes, you might have to make, especially if it's somebody in your life, you might have to make that boundary that Rita made. Mm -hmm. But every person that is struggling with addiction deserves to be treated like a human, Mm -hmm. deserves to be respected and loved and supported. Mm -hmm. Not enabled, but supported. Yes. And get great therapy. (laughs) Yes, and get great therapy. (laughs) Yes. So, you know, we have uh, Rita leave Brooke, and then the second half of this episode, we see the flip immediately. Brooke is drunk again and mocking Rita. Mm -hmm. What are your feelings about, or just some quick thoughts about the second half of this episode with Adam? Mm, Yes, this was messy, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And it felt like the second half was just the opposite of the first half, where with Adam, it felt like he was really opening the door for that chaos and for yeah. her breakdown and in some ways even taking advantage of it, right? Yes. The enabling, right? We mm-hmm. we spent the first half with the supporter and we spent the second half with the enabler. Oh, yes. And it was really hard to watch the spiral happen Mm -hmm. like to like watch the spiral and obviously the spiral ending with them having sex and her saying yes finish inside me and Mm. you can't help but obviously think that this is about having a baby Mm -hmm. and so for her to be making a choice to have a baby inside of her drunken state it felt really scary yes so i guess we'll see what happens next week we will have to see, but now we kind of get why Rita's like Adam's back. Like, yep. It, like, it, is, it is crystal clear why Rita is not a fan of Adam. <laughs> Rita feels for Adam what we feel about Colin. <laughs> <laughs> Sit down, <So> yes. Colin. <laughs> <laughs> Well, our time is almost up for today, but I wanted to make sure to leave y'all with some resources and recommendations so that you can continue processing what we discussed today. But remember that this isn't a substitute for therapy. If you feel like you could use some support, be sure to reach out to a mental health professional. 
All right, then. So we talked a lot about narcissism, and there is a book that I think goes more in depth into exploring narcissism as a diagnosis and also how to engage with folks who might have narcissistic traits or this full diagnosis. And that is Rethinking Narcissism, The Secret to Recognizing and Coping with Narcissist. And that is by Craig Malkin check it out. Um, And in terms of thinking about Black youth and their mental health, um, Black Girl Smile, again, is a wonderful resource. And they have an entire page with all sorts of culturally affirming and supportive mental health resources and referrals. The American Foundation for Suicide Prevention has a website AFSP.org, and they are able to list risk factors and protective factors and warning signs to look out for. Just like we were talking about when Layla was giving away her personal objects, that's a warning sign for suicidality. And that website has some other warning signs to look out for. And if you notice suicidal ideation in yourself or someone you love, there are some great suicide prevention resources. SAMHSA's National Helpline, which is 1 800. 662 help has mental health as well as substance use support and resources and they're available 24 hours a day seven days a week chat phone text all sorts of different support as well as the national suicide prevention lifeline is another great resource and their phone number is 1-800-273-8255 Finally, I mentioned Dr. Rihanna Elise Anderson and her work on family socialization and Black parenting. She has several really great articles and work that she's done in the media, and she was featured on a wonderful podcast called Therapy for Black Girls. Her session is 178, which looks at taking action and also taking care of ourselves at the same time. So I just want to make sure that you had those resources after everything we discussed today. I hope that they're helpful. And yeah, thank you. And you can find these and other recommendations on the In Treatment page on HBO's website. And it looks like that's our time for this week. Which is such a bummer, but we'll be back next week. So be sure to subscribe to In Session, the In Treatment podcast, so you don't miss us. And while you're doing that, honey, give us a rating and review. Five stars, five (laughs) stars. It helps others find the show. In Session is the official companion podcast for the HBO show In Treatment. And it's a production of HBO and Pineapple Street Studios. Production music is courtesy of HBO. And you can watch new episodes of In Treatment on Sunday and Monday nights on HBO Max. Dr. Janelle, mm-hmm. I'm gonna miss you, but I'll see you next yes, week. Yes, and I give you five stars. Five stars. Yes. <laughs> Until next week. Uh, Dr. Janelle gives me five stars. This is the best day ever. See y'all soon. <laughs> Sorry. And I'm sorry. Can we try that again, Brandon? I'm sorry. (laughs) I got you. I I was thinking about me snorting, and then I was like, Janelle, get it together. (laughs) I snore all the time. You are in good company. Do not worry. (laughs) I've embraced it.